Uh, well, today, uh, our sermon is about uh, our text, and my sermon is about food, food for the soul. Um, and something that we all have in common is that we eat. And uh, it's something that is not just necessary, but it's extremely pleasurable. Uh, yet somehow our relationship with food is off. Uh, I, I read an interview uh, this week because I knew this was my topic, and I stumbled upon an interview with Jennifer Aniston. And uh, she was asked uh, her, what her secret was to looking good well into middle age. Uh, she's 48, by the way. Um, and she had a very terse response to that question. She said, stop eating junk every day. Uh, except she didn't use the word junk. Uh, she used a different word. Um, and it reminded me, when she said that, and I, as I thought about it, it reminded me of one of my favorite writers, Wendell Berry. Now, Wendell Berry, uh, he's, he, he's a Kentuckian, he's a, a writer, and uh, in many ways he's a prophet as he's trying to tell the truth uh, about um, our, our, as Americans, our very unhealthy relationship with food. And one of the, in one space he writes this, he says, most urban shoppers would tell you that food is produced on farms, but most of them do not know what farms or where the farms are or what knowledge of skills are involved in farming. For them, food is pretty much an abstract idea, something they do not know or imagine until it appears on the grocery shelf or on the table." End quote. So to put it concisely, what Wendell Berry and what Jennifer Aniston, uh, they would be really big proponents of local, organic, and whole foods. And it just makes me want to ask them the questions, have you ever eaten a deep fried Snickers? <laughs> And they do have a point, uh, but let's be honest, they're food snobs. And maybe you're more like me, and you're a food slob. Um, I, I went to Ryan's Steakhouse Buffet for my 21st birthday. Um, there's an Indian restaurant on the corner of Upper and High that just opened up, which is about a block from my office, and I was a little too excited uh, to see that they had a lunch buffet. See, I feel really honest, even admitting this here, I, I feel ashamed of being a food slob. And I desperately wish I was more of a food snob. But see, being a food snob, it sounds really great when I'm not hungry. But instead of being hungry, if you're a food slob like me, you binge on Ben and Jerry's. Uh, you, you go to North Lime Donuts, and instead of just getting a cup of coffee like you told yourself you were going to do, you get three donuts. And maybe uh, this is all funny, but you do this kind of thing, and you wake up the next morning... And you ask yourself the question, how is it even possible for me to enjoy myself without these hangovers of resentment and regret the night, the, from the night before? If you ask yourself those kind of questions, you sound like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 who says, I do what I do not want to do. So why do we reside on these opposite ends of the spectrum? Food snob, food slob, culinary Pharisee or culinary hedonist? It's because we're really looking to, for food to do something for us that it can't. We're looking for food to do so much more than just remove our hunger pangs. We're looking for it to do so much more than just give us emotional relief when we're stressed. We're looking to food to heal us. See, the food snobs, they think they can reach some moral standard by what we can eat. When I read Wendell Berry, I get inspired, but then it sounds a whole lot more like reading the Ten Commandments. 
There's some way that if I, if I obey all these food commandments, the food snob, but the food snob thinks is that you, it can confer on them some kind of righteousness. But then the food slob thinks that the pleasure offered in food is the highest pleasure possible. And we eat more and more and more hoping to find it, but we never do find it. So how do we reorient ourselves? What, what's it going to take for you and for me to right the ship? Well, there is a better way, you know. We must realize that we're made for something more. We're made for another world. We're made to live into a different story. Uh, C.S. Lewis in in Mere Christianity famously uh, penned this quote. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. There is another option on the table than being a food snob and a food slob. And I think we're going to find it in Exodus 16. What Exodus 16 points to is food for our souls. Food that truly satisfies. So let's read our, pa- our passage together, Exodus 16. Verse 1, uh, page 8 in your bulletin. Let's read it together. Uh, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening, You shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it's against the Lord. Then Moses and Aaron said, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay before the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. 
Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Our passage will break down in this way. Uh, we're going to look at past deliverance in verse 1. Uh, we're going to look at the present problem in verses 2 and 3. And we're going to look at uh, future provision in verses 4 uh, to 21. Uh, so past deliverance, verse 1. Uh, Egypt has just come out of, or Israel has just come out of Egypt. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was really brutal in slavery. And it, it, it was, freedom for them was really glorious because their slavery was so cruel. And we read about the nature, of their, uh, the nature of their slavery in Exodus 1, verses 13 and 14. It says this, So they, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. So we, we, we could read on and on and on, and what you would find out is that th- their service was excessive. Not only did they suffer in their work, not only did they sweat making brick and mortar and sweat working the fields, but Pharaoh had the, their first, their, their, every male born killed. The suffering, the oppression was to the first degree. So they cried out to the Lord in their oppression, and what God did is he sent a deliverer to them. He sent Moses. And Moses goes back and forth with Pharaoh. They have this extended negotiation, uh, which in some respects Moses loses. (laughs) Uh, That Moses wasn't able to convince Pharaoh that it was a good idea to let the people go. Of course he didn't think it was a good idea to let the people go because his kingdom was being built on their backs. And so eventually Moses gives up on this negotiation. They flee Egypt and they're stuck. They come uh, to a a crisis of faith. On one side, they have the Red Sea, and on the back side, they have the Egyptian army. So what are they going to do? They're either going to turn around and, and be slaughtered by the Egyptians, or they're going to jump in the Red Sea and drown. Those are their options. And God does the miraculous. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites, uh, they, they, they scurry across into safety while the, the water walls on either side collapse on the Egyptians, and they're killed. It was dramatic. It was, it, this, was, this was the uh, pinnacle moment uh, for, for old, the Old Testament people of God. When they said, what's the biggest thing God's ever done for you? They point back to, to their deliverance from slavery. This was a huge part of their story. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, uh, you're objecting to this miracle, this parting of the Red Sea. You Maybe even you, hearing this text, how could bread and quail just end up in the desert? Uh, did that really happen, or is this just some myth? Well, I, I can respect that. Uh, our, our church is a place where you can come and you can doubt your doubts. You can come and ask these questions and not be, and, and not be chided for it. Because the truth is, we all have these questions if we'll be honest with ourselves. But maybe for you, it's this, it's this, this, this objection to miracles. And... Um, and I, I'd like for you to just hear this quote. This is from uh, Tim Keller in Reason for God. He says this. Uh, for some, science has proven that there's no such thing as miracles. It's one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes and cannot test for others. But it's quite another to insist that science proves that no other causes could possibly exist. 
Here's what he's saying. He's saying that it's one thing to, to say, yes, science can, can, can test some causes, but not all. But it's quite another to say that, that science can test all causes. And if our faith is only in science to explain all things, then of course miracles would be absurd. But what if science doesn't explain everything? What if there really is a God who created all things out of nothing? And if there is, wouldn't it be plausible that this Red Sea could part? If God created all things out of nothing, wouldn't it be possible that Mary could divinely conceive the Son of God? If, if, if God really created all things out of nothing, is it, really, is it really a surprise that Jesus could raise again from the dead? See, science is a really good thing. It's something that we embrace at our church. And there are people who've spent their lives uh, in education for scientific causes within our church. We're not anti-intellectual. And science is a good thing. But it, it could, because it does, it reveals to us the truth that God's revealed in his creation. And we need to champion its causes, but we must beware of allowing science to explain all things. See, Christians are people who can hold on to the importance of science on one hand while allowing room in their worldview for miracles. And this miracle happened in the Red Sea, and it was deeply personal to them. So you've got these people. They, 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 they've just been delivered from slavery. The Red Sea is parted. Now they're, they're wondering. They're not in the promised land yet. They're somewhere between slavery on their, uh, behind them and the promised land that's in front of them. And they, what they did is they, there's this peninsula between the promised land and between where they were in Egypt, in the Sinai Peninsula. And what they did is they traveled about 1,000 miles over 40 years when they could have made the direct path of 200 miles and done it in about three months. But they didn't because they were wanderers, because they were people depicted in verses 2 and 3 like we just saw. In the next chapter, this, this chapter, that is not slavery, not the promised land. This, they're wondering, and they're living in these tents. And living in tents rough, but it's, uh, it's way better than this cruel slavery that they were used to. So they were free, and they were nomads. They could look back on their past, and it would tell them that, that God's done great things for them. And they could look forward to, to what God's promised them into the future and know that they're not home just yet. That's, a, that's our posture, isn't it? Aren't we in this wondering posture as Christians where we look back at, 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 at the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to give us hope in the present? And as Christians, we, we've got to keep this thing of memory. We've got to be reminded and informed and inspired by Jesus and what he's done for us as we wander somewhere between slavery and home. So right now, we're in this wilderness. Our wilderness isn't the desert. Our wilderness isn't the Sinai Peninsula. Our wilderness is the desert of our own desires. Our desert is living in this broken world. Our desert is, is, is a desert which is full of the forces of evil. And it is in this desert that we're tempted to cut off from our past and really question if it's true. And then we're left not just without joy in the present, but we're, out, we're also without hope in the future. So Christian, at the very center of our task as Christians is to look back at our past deliverance. And we do this here at this table. Remember 1 Corinthians 11, what we read every week. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering forces us to stop and reflect 
on the past. The scriptures take very seriously this role of reflection, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about anxiety. And he says, consider, consider the lilies of the field. So Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11 saying, remember, Jesus in Matthew 6 is saying, consider the lilies of the field. Because if you do, your anxiety will begin uh, to, 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 to be eliminated. And then Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, think, think, think on these things, the things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. So it's this considering, this remembering, this thinking that our duties that feed our soul. We must reflect on the significance of Christ's work in order to frame our whole lives. That's why verse 1, look at it. Look at the end of verse 1. It says, they had departed from the land of Egypt. See, the moment that they forget of their past deliverance when they, when, when, when they, when they fled Egypt is the moment that they lose power in their present. The same is true for us. Our eyes, in many ways, are always set on the past. That's the story we're going to live into. But then we see their present problem, verses 2 and 3. Their shift, their shift in attitude happened really, really fast. Uh, they crossed the Red Sea in chapter 14. They sang and they danced as they celebrated the victory of the Lord in chapter 15. And then in 16, verses 2 and 3, they grumble because they're hungry. That happened really fast, didn't it? Dramatic deliverance in 14. They sang and danced like crazy. 16, verses 2 and 3. Not even, not even verses 22 and 23, but verses 2 and 3, they're grumbling. They can't even make it two verses without grumbling. It's because power, because hunger is so powerful. Um, there was a, uh, there was a, the, the, the science of us um, that did this, um, did this experiment with mice. And uh, there are two groups of mice. There was a control group and the, and the group that was being tested. And uh, with the mice, they, they put them in this, in this, uh, in this kind of, box, more or less, with several rooms. And in one room that was open to all the mice, both, both groups of mice, in the corner of one of those rooms, they, they lined it with this chemical that's given off by fox. And right next to, 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 to where, the, where the fox chemical was, was a big, was, was a mound of food, more than all the mice could eat together. And, uh, and in the two groups, the one, the control group didn't have their neurons flashed on, but the other group did have their neurons flashed on that they were hungry. And what the, what, the, what the ones who had their neurons flashed on, what, they, what did they do? They went and ate all the food. They were able to take the risk of the potential fox in order to eat. So what hunger tells us is it's more powerful than fear. That's how powerful hunger is. Uh, you know it's true. Uh, you know that feeling, don't you? When you go, uh, you go to a Mexican restaurant and you eat all the chips and salsa because you're hungry and then you get your entree and you don't want to eat any of it. Uh, you know, when you go to Ramsey's and they've got the crackers and the butter out there and you really don't want crackers and butter, that's not why you went to Ramsey's. You went to Ramsey's for your entree, but by the time your entree gets there, you're full of crackers and butter. Because hunger's powerful. It's so powerful that you're not going to eat what you really prefer. And it's so powerful that it made the Israelites forget their salvation just days earlier. And what happens when you forget? You grumble. The Israelites literally had just been rescued. How could they forget so quickly? That's our problem, isn't it? 
don't we have this kind of spiritual amnesia? Don't we have really bad short-term memories about what God has done for us? And what our grumbling reveals is that we really are living in rebellion against the Lord. We're living in stubborn refusal to believe his word. I mean, think about it. Do you think God forgot that they're in the desert and they don't have any food? Do you think God forgot that their throats were parched? It was not God's lack of knowledge or power that kept him from providing for them. It wasn't his lack of care. Yet the accusation from the Israelites was that God had left them for dead. So what do you grumble about? What is your grumbling? What does it say about what you think your deepest problem really is? See, for the Israelites, their greatest problem wasn't they didn't have food. For the Israelites, their greatest problem was that they doubted God's goodness and power. You probably don't grumble for food. Maybe you do. But if you're hungry, you can probably just go to Trader Joe's. You can probably just go to Chipotle. You can probably just go to Speedway and quench your hunger. So what, what is it that you complain about instead? What is the subject of your murmuring? Because grumbling at its very root is being discontent with the cards that God has dealt you. But instead, we stand in judgment over the Israelites. We point fingers at them for their problems. But we suffer from the very same things as we spend our days complaining about the state of our lives. That's their present problem. Their present problem isn't their lack of food. Their present problem is their lack of faith. Well, then we see this, this, this future provision, this abundant provision in verses uh, 4 to 21. Um, it's amazing to me that God fed them. If I were God, and I'm really glad I'm not, but if I were God, I would have told them they could fend for themselves. It's surprising that they would grumble after such deliverance, but it's even more surprising that God responds in mercy and grace. But every day, except for the Sabbath, for 40 years, God gave them bread in the morning and quail in the evening. Jesus, the passage that was read earlier, that Megan read, is from John 6. And Jesus is picking up on Exodus 16 here. And he says this. Go, go back. Let's uh, turn your bulletins there, and we'll read it together. Let me find it. Verse 31. Start in 31. The crowd, uh, the crowd's talking here in verse 31, and they're saying, Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So, you see Jesus? Jesus is the true and better bread. See, the bread of the wilderness, it rotted. 
The bread of the wilderness only satiated for a few hours. The bread of the wilderness had, had to come down again and again. But the bread of life, Jesus, he's eternal. The bread of life promises to leave someone so satisfied that they never hunger again. The bread of life doesn't come repeatedly. The bread of life has come once and for all. Jesus came down from heaven and he's given to us at no cost to us, but at great cost to his father. See, the payment is made by the giver, not the receiver. And because it's paid in full, it was and remains a totally free meal for your soul to anyone who would come to the table. So really, the message for us today is one of contentment. And the question is, is Jesus really enough for you? If you're like me, he usually isn't. If you're like me, you're discontent because we've forgotten the glory of our salvation, just like Israel did. And we grumble against the Lord because our desires, sometimes even healthy ones, are taking up a disproportionate space in our soul. We say we want a job by May, and we want it to be a respectable company with this salary. We say we want our house to be fixer-upper perfect. We tell God we wanted a spouse, and we want one yesterday. All the while, Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. So will you come to him? Jesus has never turned down a soul who was willing to admit and who was willing to take him in as their only solution to their hunger. Will you come to Jesus? Uh, I want to apply this, uh, this message, this contentment message uh, to three groups of people. Seekers, sufferers, and sinners. Seekers, sufferers, and sinners. To the seeker, uh, if you're sitting there and, and, and uh, Jesus isn't something that's been a big part of your life ever, hasn't been a big part of your life for a long time, uh, I want to remind, maybe even share with you a verse you've never heard before. And it's from Psalm 34.8. Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me encourage you to test him. See if this is true for you. See if you really do taste from the Lord that you really taste him to be good. Well, how do you taste him? Uh, I, I, would, I would push you to the book of John. If you read through the book of John, what you'll see over and over again in the book of John are people who are coming to Jesus hungry. And our hope as a church is that as you would read the book of John, that one of those stories of people who come to Jesus for contentment would really resonate with you. And maybe you'll find out that the Jesus in the book of John is not the Jesus that you thought, not the Jesus that's been represented in other Christians you've known or other churches that you've been a part of. Maybe you'll read the book of John and for the first time see a man that you've never known before. So taste and see that he's good. Perhaps it's the sufferers. Um, maybe you're in suffering. And when you're in suffering, you're famished for anything, something, anything to be given to you. And the problem for sufferers is there's usually not a quick, easy fix to relieve your suffering. But you'll take any morsel of hope that can get you through the day. I was reminded of Matthew 7. Uh, Matthew 7 says this, uh, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? You see bread again? Or if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so if you're a sufferer, let me encourage you to do this. Ask Jesus for a morsel of hope. The morsel might be our passage today. Our mor- your mor- morsel might be found in John 6. Your morsel might be s- a prayer that a friend says over you. Your morsel might be this meal that's before us. I don't know what it's going to be. But God's faithful to feed hungry people who come to him for food. And to the sinner. So we had seekers, we had sufferers, and last we have sinners. Um, it's easy to look at your repeated failures before God and think that God's fed up with you. It's easy to think that surely his grace must have run out. Surely there's not a second chance offered to us. But remember our passage? God fed them even though they grumbled. And he continued to feed them for 40 years. So there is a second chance. Your time cannot run out as long as you repent. As long as you come to him and say, feed me. I'm sick of feeding at other tables. If that's you, we had this time of reflection. You come and you take your elements. You come back to your seat. I encourage you to pour your heart out to the Lord. He's going to hear your prayer. He's going to give you the assurance of his grace in his sacrament. So, friend, are you hungry for Jesus? Come to him and eat, and you'll find food for your soul. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to believe uh, that you really will feed us. Uh, we see something like Exodus 16, and we just write it off as, uh, that was a miracle, that was good for them, but what about me? I've been dealing with my hunger for so long. Uh, Lord, I pray that we'd be honest about our hunger. Lord, because if we're not, we're not going to come to you. So, Lord, force us to deal uh, with the, our insufficiency. Lord, that you have given us appetites, and our hearts really are restless until we eat of you. So Lord, I pray that you would move people to eat of you. We pray all these things in your name.